Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This episode of Unspooled is brought to you by Pitney Bowes. Do you know what Pitney Bowes is? It is awesome for people like me who hate going to the post office. Their SendPro C200 is perfect for your small office or if you're somebody like me who actually does mail a fair amount of things. It is a all-in-one mailing a package or a letter guru. It's got a scale. It prints off your label. It tells you how much it's going to cost. It's wonderful. It's everything you need to just get all your stuff taken care of right at your desk without having to run errands. Plus, if you get the Pitney Bowes SendPro C200, you can save three cents a letter and up to 39% off your retail shipping rates. So start saving today. Get a free 60-day trial of a Pitney Bowes C200. Get your own little box right here in your house. Visit them online at pb.com slash unspooled. That's pb.com slash unspooled. It's 1997, and James Cameron is speeding towards disaster. The movie, Titanic. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And each week we are going down the AFI's top 100 films from the 2007 list. Uh, last week we talked about The French Connection. A lot of you had a lot of thoughts about The French Connection. For example, our friend Stefan at A Little Older on Twitter told us French Connection Part 2 is pretty good. It's, it's, there's a lot to like. It's very different. But uh, you may like it even though you made fun of it. All right. I hear you, I hear you. Uh, people are also totally agreeing with us that Freakin does have better work here, and The Exorcist should be on this list, not The French Connection, which I totally agree with. Also on the forums, so many people related The French Connection to a movie that I really love, Die Hard, and they said, how come a cop movie like this, a good cop movie, but just a cop movie like this, is in the top 100 of AFI films, and Die Hard isn't? And I think that is an excellent call. I don't know, maybe Die Hard seemed too new? We are still making sequels of it right now in the present for people to take it that seriously. But honestly, I can't think of many action films better than Die Hard. Just like I guess a lot of people can't think of better cop films than French Connection. And this week, I would argue, is on par with The Wizard of Oz as far as giant cultural impact. 
as mega spectacle, star-making machine that I love a lot, except I will say this, it has a lot more haters than The Wizard of Oz. It does indeed. And we actually asked you to call us last week and give us your hot takes on Titanic. Positive, negative, whatever, we want to hear them. So let's take a listen to what you had to say. Titanic is a love story by someone who's never been in love. Titanic? What a hot garbage, ridiculous, schmaltzy, just nothing but mainstream. Like, I, oh my gosh, my heart will go on. Are we really about to talk about Celine Dion? Uh, hot take. I think Titanic is one of the uh, best movies ever made. It's a total masterclass in story structure, foreshadowing, set up and payoff. I think Titanic would have been really good if they had to cut out the entire love story and had pirates attack the Titanic while it was going down. My only comment on Titanic is that Leo Dio was way too little and young looking to be cast as the romantic lead. What James Cameron essentially says is that the real-life tragedy and story of the Titanic is not exciting enough. And in fact, you have to somehow interject a love story that is kind of basic. It is my favorite movie of all time. Arguably the greatest movie of our generation on every category. It is divine. I would have liked it better if it was just three hours of Kathy Bates wearing fabulous hats and insulting people. Okay, wait, here's my hot take. Uh, Titanic is a masterclass guy, and Titanic is the greatest movie ever, Generation Girl. Y'all are my new best friends. You can totally hang. And also, uh, Kathy Bates, haberdashery dude, you're cool too. Like I said, a lot of anger, but some positive ones in there too. Um, But now, without any further ado, let's talk about Titanic. I have to tell you, Titanic is a movie that I was very excited about. In the theater, right? Like, I was like, oh, this is so cool. I've never seen anything like it. But when you rolled that 83, I was like, ugh, Titanic. Uh-huh. And I want to say I've done a 180 on this movie because I think my memory of it has been kind of bastardized. I don't think I remembered the movie. I felt like it was all cheese with a really great special effects sequence in it. But I actually found that I engaged in this movie much more. I feel like I've been giving this movie short shrift. Yeah, the Titanic backlash has been so strong that I feel like this movie actually deserves to be higher than 83, to be honest. I think this movie is so fantastic. I have some theories as to why that backlash uh, began. It basically rhymes with James Cameron. But this movie meant the world to me. I think I saw this movie three times in theaters. I stole a poster from the movie. I put it up in my college dorm room. I went nuts. This is my this is my film. I do you ever get asked what's the one movie you would watch a bazillion times in a row that if you're flipping through the channels you just can't turn it off? Yeah. Because to me that's Titanic. Like full really? stop. This is my movie. How many times have you seen Titanic, do you think? Possibly wow. in the thirties. Wow. I, I have it on VHS and that dual deck VHS thing. Oh, I remember that. It was like a like for those of you <laughs> listening, there used to be VHS tapes and they came in a two pack. Like that's how big the movie was. Only like Godfather Two came in the two pack. Um I will say that in my research for Titanic, I thought Roger Ebert had a great quote about it. Um he said, It's flawlessly crafted, intelligently constructed, strongly acted, and spellbinding. Movies like this are not merely difficult to make at all, but almost impossible to make well. And I feel like that is, I will say just from a special effects standpoint, watching this movie, I'm like, this looks fantastic. Like, And talking about another epic like Ben-Hur, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. These movies are rewarded by FI. 
It's true. Maybe maybe we'll discover as we go through this list that the longer your movie is, the better of a chance it is. This is three <laughs> hours and 15 minutes. I don't regret a second of it. Titanic, to me, coming out in 1997 is really fascinating because it feels like it's both the last of the Ben-Hurs, mm-hmm. of the classic Ben-Hurs, and the beginning of everything to come. You know, it's this old-style epic, but it's also breaking every technological new ground. It's shaping our new world of CG. It's shaping what films are going to look like in the future. And arguably launching one of the biggest male stars of our time. I mean, I think DiCaprio, this is what catapulted him into the stratosphere. I mean, this became Leomania. I mean, was Leomania happening before? I mean, it— Oh, fuck, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. yeah. There All was right. a little movie called Romeo and Juliet the year before Wait, that this. was before this? Yeah, that was before this. I mean, that's how James Cameron pitched this movie, is he said, Romeo and Juliet on a ship. Well, it's so funny you say that because um, I wrote down, this is Romeo and Juliet. Like, these characters are so arched. They're so big. But I'm kind of okay with it. Um, There's a long period where everybody was in love with Leonardo DiCaprio, and we just wanted to watch him die. I mean, if we can't have him, no one can. Everyone (laughs) will watch him die. He was so wonderful. And this is the beginning of the Leonardo DiCaprio going from hair in your face to hair slicked back, which is the beginning of the end for me as far as DiCaprio. Oh, really? That's when you check out? I like like hair in the face. So you like beginning of movie, end of movie DiCaprio, not middle of movie DiCaprio, where he goes to like the fancy fancy dinner. Yeah. As soon as he goes Irish jigging and his hair gets in his face, that's my man. You're right. So you were talking about this movie taking place at like an interesting point of time, the end of the Ben-Hur is going into like a a CGI revolution. I just wanted to kind of let the audience know it did come out uh, in 1997 and just a couple of things that were going on just to kind of put you in the headspace. This is the year that Princess Diana died. Uh, Mike Tyson bit Evander Holyfield's ear during a match. Uh, Notorious B.I.G. was shot and killed. And uh, if you're listening to the show, you know that we have a little obsession with The Simpsons. And The Simpsons became the longest-running primetime animated series in 1997, which is crazy to think that we're in 2018 and it's still going on. Don't worry, honey. You can win without them. I guess I'll have to. Then I'll be queen of the world of spelling. That's right, queen of the world of spelling. I think that Titanic is an interesting film because it really is the last film I can remember that, like, galvanized people. Even with another Cameron movie, Avatar, which eventually knocked this off the highest grossing list, and and I would argue now, like, the Infinity War films, they don't have the power that Titanic had. That's so interesting because, to me, 1997 is also the year— where people were really getting on the internet, like really, really getting on the internet, really starting to, which to me is the beginning of the fragmentation of pop culture, of everybody getting into niches. Oh, yeah. You know, to me, maybe Titanic is the last of the Michael Jackson era, where we were all really into one thing. Believe, and I love Infinity War. I'm a big fan. It's just not going to have the resonance that this film had. And I think Infinity War is just a flatter film, because what Titanic is, is it's terrifying. It's legitimately terrifying in a way that Marvel movies aren't really because you know not everybody, you know people aren't going to really die. They might vanish, but they'll be back. There's real <laughs> death in Titanic. Spoilers. Sorry. 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 <laughs> kind of not sorry. The love in, the love story here in Titanic is unbelievable. No other modern avatar kind of film even compares to that. Like everything here is just operating. It's a thriller. It's action. It's historical. It's drama. It's Literally every genre in this gigantic package, and then it's flawlessly done. The love story is a very small section of the movie when you look at the whole, because I kind of think of the movie 
in different chunks. Like you have uh, obviously the Bill Paxton section that kind of bookends it. Then you have the love story, and then you have the accident. You know, the the sinking of the Titanic. The Rose and Jack like romance part really is starting at like 40 minutes in and by an hour and 47 minutes in we're hitting the the fatal crash. So then the movie just goes full on thriller. So I feel like they do a lot of legwork in that time to set up this like grand romance which I thought was surprising at how economical it is. Like, you know, a lot of times I think we uh, find that films now spend too much time setting up stuff. And here they really were able to cut to the chase. Well, I think it's astonishing how real their romance is. You know, it's the kind of quote-unquote typical cliche, like poor boy, rich girl story. But Rose DeWitt Boudicca, played by Kate Winslet, is maybe one of the best female characters I've seen because she's not just this, like, perfect heroine. She's a snob. She's really hot-tempered. In comparison to Rose, Leonardo DiCaprio's a manic pixie dream hunk, can we call him that? (laughs) I mean, Jack is just like handsome blonde, loves her beyond all measure from the first time he sees her, gives her a hard time, teaches her how to shake up her life, teaches her how to spit. I will say that even I was wooed by DiCaprio. I mean, he has this amazing energy, but I think his energy stays in one direction. It's always moving forward. And agreeing with what you're saying here, Kate Winslet really shows you this amazing transition from this uh, person who's kept, you know, in in a safe, you know, and then gets to really fully blossom. So, yes, he was the catalyst, but she made this grand arc. I think that's the reason why Kate Winslet and Gloria Stewart both got nominated for Academy Awards because it is an amazing character arc performance 100%. I think in many ways, she gets underrated in this film because of DiCaprio mania. Well, see, here is what I love about just the way James Cameron structures their romance into the film. He does it geographically. Their romance starts at the back of the film with her committing suicide and him trading his life for her. It goes all the way up to the very front of the prow and the heart will go on moment when he kisses her for the first time and they're embracing in the sunset. And then it goes all the way back to the bottom when they're at the back of the ship as it sinks to the ocean and he gives up his life for her again. Wow. It's this beautiful circular arc. You just blew my mind with that. I, I did not think of it like that. That's actually really – it's amazing. I think one thing that this movie does so well is geography. Like it does it so well. James Cameron is amazing at this. Like he sets up how the entire ship looks like. He's like, here's steerage. Here's the – big gears at the bottom and the coal stuffers. Here's first class. Here's the dining room. Here's the deck. He sets it up so well that when the ship goes to hell at the end of it and they're running through everything, we know where everything is. We've been there. We have the geography. I will argue that he even does it before the actual movie starts by showing you that dive footage of the actual Titanic. You're in the actual Titanic. Then you come out and you're with Bill Paxton. And then they show you a like computer-generated simulation of how the Titanic sank. So you understand everything before you even get on that boat. He understands that you don't get tension from not knowing what's happening, that you get tension from knowing what's going to happen. You know that ship is going to break in half. And how it's literally going to break in half when Bill Paxton's buddy, the guy with the funny t-shirts, basically- (laughs) The guy with the smiley face with the bullet on his head. By the way, not an actor- James Cameron wrote it with his friend in mind, and then when he couldn't find the right actor for that role, he's like, I'll just cast my friend. And he's like, if you want me to wreck your movie. Um, But he shows you, he's like, once the ship breaks in half, then this part's going to go up, and then it's going to go down really fast. It literally lays out every detail 
of the accent before you're even there. And then it's like in the back of your mind. So the entire film, it works on all these levels. It almost allows you to enjoy the end more because you know what's going to happen. It's foreshadowing. Yeah. Let's actually talk more about the structure and kind of work our way in because okay. I think it's just brilliantly done. I mean, you sit down for a Titanic movie in 1997, you know what you're expecting, right? You're like, it's a giant ship. And I feel like a bunch of directors have just been like, hey, first scene, look at the ship. It's incredible. And what he does is he makes first this kind of like fake, I think it looks way too fake, archival footage. Because yes. there's a girl in there who just has my haircut. And I'm like, people didn't have my haircut back then. <laughs> Nobody had my haircut in 1912. People combed their hair better than I did. But then he makes you hungry to see the Titanic. He shows you the ship when it's battered. He shows you it covered in mold. Then he shows you it pixelated. And he's got this guide for you in the form of Bill Paxton and his buddy, Louis Abernathy, bullet in the head guy. But they build this hunger while calling it a ship with a big ass, while cracking pretty cool jokes. Like, here, let's listen to some of the cruel stuff they say. Dive six. Here we are again on the deck of Titanic. Two and a half miles down. 3,821 meters. Pressure outside is three and a half tons per square inch. These windows are nine inches thick, and if they go, it's INR in two microseconds. All right, enough of that bullshit. <laughs> it's sayonara in two microseconds. Now, wait, I have a theory about Bill Paxton. Okay. Bill Paxton is James Cameron. Interesting. I believe this because James Cameron wanted to make a Titanic film basically so he could just go check out Titanic. A hundred percent. He wanted to do this. He was in the submersible with the fragile glass. He actually almost wrecked his submersible on the prow of the Titanic. Like as though he's taking the piss out of himself now. He actually did that. He tore off the camera housing because wow. he was steering crazy. He is saying, I know you guys think that I'm this just grave robber is sort of what they were calling um, the Bill Paxton character here. Kind of what people were saying about – James Cameron in general, making fun of this movie, saying it was going to fail, saying that he couldn't do it. And he's putting himself in this movie in a way that I think allows you to make fun of him and say, yeah, you are callous. Maybe you are callous. And then he gets to prove to you that he's not. Well, I mean, the redemption arc in many respects of Bill Paxton's character is that. You know, his character realizes, he goes, I missed I missed what the Titanic was. I was just there to be a treasure hunter. But now I understand there's so much beauty and depth. There's so much more there. And I think that that's the journey that he went on when he decided to go diving for the Titanic, then writing the script, and then making the film. You leave with a respect. And when you look at the site in the beginning of the movie, you're looking at it like, whoa, cool, shipwreck. And at the end, you're like, oh, so many people died here. Because you feel it. You feel the end. And, and uh, you know, the end of the movie, by the way, was going to be a little bit different. And I would argue a little bit lamer. Um, this is what happens at the end. It's the same idea. Uh, Rose goes to the back of the ship and she's about to, you know, peer over, kind of uh, duplicating what we saw her do in the beginning. Uh, Bill Paxton and her daughter, Catcher, think that she's committing suicide and this happens. Hannah, please don't! Don't come any closer. I'll drop it. You had it the entire time? The hardest part about being so poor was being so rich. But every time I thought about selling it, I thought of Cal. And somehow, I made it without his help. Holy shit. Look, Rose. I don't know what to say to a woman who tries to jump off the Titanic when it's not sinking and then jumps back on when it is. 
We're dealing with logic here, I know that, but please think about this for a second. Oh, I've thought about this for years. And I've come all the way here to put it back where it belongs. Wait. Just let me hold it in my hand. I That's think the an end awful scene is. because you don't know where your loyalty is. Your loyalty yeah. should be 100% with Rose. She just survived the fucking Titanic. But instead, you're looking at the desperation in Bill Paxton's eyes and being like, why is that crazy lady going to throw that diamond away? He really wants it. Can I ask you a question about this whole Bill Paxton segment? I mean, Rose is kind of like trolling him hard, right? Because she sees him on the news and she's like, oh, I want to get there. I want to talk to him. But she doesn't have any information and she doesn't even pretend to have any information and they just kind of move her into the boat like it seems so much easier for bill to go to her than for her to go to the boat um you sound a lot like bullet face guy <laughs> bullet face guy <laughs> is like she's a loyal she's a nutcase i mean there's so much hostility towards this old rose even when she shows up he's like she's an actress right i want to talk about rose as she starts to guide bill paxton into her memories oh yeah because this rose who shows up She's not just some, like, sappy old woman. She's tough as nails, and we hear it in her voice. We hear this personality that we're going to see Kate Winslet embody now. First, I want to listen to the way that Cameron uses sound effects and muffled glimpses of music to establish her memories punching through the darkness. And then right after that is the detail that I really love. When he has Gloria Stewart start to describe the Titanic, we're about to get our first real glimpse of it. But instead of having us think with our eyes, he tells us to imagine our nose. It's been 84 years. It's okay. Just try to remember anything, anything at all. Do you want to hear this or not, Mr. Lovett? It's been 84 years. And I can still smell the fresh paint. That. I love that. That is telling you, the audience, to use your senses. And it's something that we had never considered before we sat down to watch Titanic. What did it smell like? He makes us yeah, imagine the, the new newness boat, of it. The new car smell in a giant luxury liner. I feel like, again, the one thing that you leave, and it sounds dumb and cliche to say, is like, the boat is a character. There are parts in this movie where... The boat feels so familiar to you because he's just like walked you into it in such a way that it feels like you are there. And I think some of that is done with the camera angles. I mean, mm, he has good POV shots where you feel like you're walking there. And that's really interesting. I've been noticing that a lot. Like he does something where this film will go handheld and very kind of crazy. And then it will do these awesome, very beautiful, majestic crane shots. But then these POV moments where you really feel like you are Rose. And uh, and I think all of that conspires to really place you in the film. And I heard that when the movie was re-released in 3D. Which I saw. Uh, people said it was an amazing experience. It felt like another level of this movie has been unearthed. It really was beautiful. I don't trust many people to do retroactive 3D, but I trust James Cameron. Oh, yeah. He opened up the original film. Like, he got into it. Like, if anyone's going to do a 3D version of their movie, it's James Cameron. <laughs> By the way, I want to point out that when Rose is doing these memory flashbacks right here, when old Rose is talking, she's wearing a ton of jewelry. You know, we see her personality through her costuming. She looks like an artist. Her house, when we see it, is crazy and colorful. 
All her jewelry reminds me of a really quick aside from when Leo DiCaprio is flipping through his art and he says, this is Madame Bijou. It's a woman that he drew in Paris. And he says, she wears all of her jewelry to mourn her lost love. And that's what Rose is doing. Oh, wow. I love this. That's why I forgive anything that feels slightly wonky in this movie. And and I say that in, in a loving way because, you know, there are just some things that are so circumstantial. Like the Titanic is such a giant vessel, but he makes it feel so small. And so that's why you don't question immediately why these two characters find each other seemingly all over the decks. Like they're never, there seems to be a a real open flow. I've been on a carnival cruise line and I can get lost coming back from the bar. I mean, Jack and Rose, I mean, maybe it's their magnetic love, but I do think it works for the movie and I don't question it. I'm just saying it, there are these like little things like why? Well, to be Uh, fair, they do just have all the poor people chained up. So it's easy (laughs) to find them. For a movie this massive, you know, it was... Correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was the most expensive movie ever made when it was made, right? Uh, I think now things have surpassed that. Yeah, it was staggeringly expensive. Everybody was losing their shit that he built basically a 90% two-scale boat in Mexico, which I have visited because I am crazy. Uh, This is one of those films that won every Oscar. 11 Oscars here. Uh, Just a giant, giant film in the Oscar world. And I think... Uh, again, going back to Ben-Hur, that was the other one. And then we're only missing uh, Return of the King as being like the three most Oscar-awarded uh, films of all time. Yeah, and Return of the King is not on the AFI list, but we have Fellowship of the Ring. Yes. I guess that counts. I know. Um, here's something interesting. It won for Best Original Song. Did you know that My Heart Will Go On, the song that I think is – Love hated by many. You know, I'm sure many people dance to it at their wedding, but also many people just put their nose up to it. Um, was not supposed to be in the film. Cameron wanted the entire movie to be scored by Enya. Um, and as a matter of fact, did an entire score with Enya music. She said no. Then brought in James Horner. Um, and then James Horner went behind Cameron's back, talked to Celine Dion about My Heart Will Go On, And he liked it and he put it in the film. And it just is like a happenstance extra Oscar because not only was this film iconic, but that song has become, you know, one of the most romantic songs in at least my life. That is one of the most like, quote unquote, romantic. I I don't think it's I'm not saying I feel that way. I'm just saying (laughs) I think it is viewed that way. (laughs) I'll admit that it was my song with an ex-boyfriend once. Oh, wow. And when we broke up Mm -hmm. at the Burger King at Hollywood and Highland, we were in line. He was getting food. We had just broken up. I was taking him to work and then goodbye. Uh, And they started to play My Heart Will Go On over the Burger King loudspeakers. And he turned to me and he tried to slow dance and I burst into tears. Oh, was it a sarcastic (laughs) slow dance that was happening or was it a real one? I couldn't really tell. Maybe that's why I was crying. This is your Jack and Rose story. He left you on a, a whopper. Rapper sailing out in the Highland Street. The biggest burger ever made. (laughs) When you talk to anyone involved with this movie, it seemed like a nightmare. Um, There's this one clip of DiCaprio talking about Titanic, and I want to just point out one thing. Here, take a listen. I traditionally have sort of done smaller films. Yes. um, You know, and this to me was a completely new venture, and I sort of took a chance and tried something different. And, uh, you know, it definitely worked out in my opinion, but. uh, I've never done anything of, of this caliber, and it was, it's a lot more to sort of deal with, not only the sort of endurance you need to stay in character for that long when you're there for over seven months within the sort of whirlwind of things going on around you, 
It was extremely difficult. He said, I was in character for seven months. Seven months. Like, and this is a movie that involves a lot of water, thousands of extras. Like, to be able to do one character, one movie for that long. Well, imagine being one of the extras. I mean, apparently James Cameron went to all of the extras, all of them, every single extra. And he was like, here's who you are. Here's your name. Here's your backstory. Here's what your social class is. So that when they were running around the ship, they would do it kind of like how that person was. I mean, the extras don't seem like a herd when you look at them. They seem like individuals. Talking about characters in this movie, this movie has like 20 identifiable Characters that you care about, that you watch them all die, you care about how they die, but he never even makes that so easy. Like, just to use an example, maybe my favorite tiny throwaway character in here is Guggenheim, the super, 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 super wealthy millionaire. Oh, yeah. There's two really rich people. There's Astor and then there's Guggenheim. Guggenheim is the one who won't put on his life jacket because he's like... No, no, we're going to go down like gentlemen. May I have a brandy? And he's literally sitting in a chair watching the the insanity unfold, drinking a brandy. Exactly, and that's the moment I want to talk about, is I think that there's a way of editing Titanic for humor or for fun moments, but where you're like, oh, he has a brandy, and then it ends. But what Cameron does that is so smart that to me makes him one of our best human directors is he shows us Guggenheim's face again after the brandy line, watching that water come in, and the water looks like something out of T-1000, metallic crawling yeah. at you. It looks terrifying. And you see the horror on his face, that it's not just throwaway confident guy getting a brandy. It's him realizing what he's done again. He circles back to this character just enough to make the weight of his death important. Well, I will say, and I know that people will probably slam me for being cheesy about it, but I really like the band playing on the deck of the Titanic. Like, And um, I was watching it with somebody, and they were like, oh, this is the cheesy part. But there was something that felt really grounded to it, like these – men who are in the band know they're going to die, right? That's it. I think a lot of people in this movie you see make that realization. And they are playing together. And there's that moment where they stop playing. And then one of them starts playing the violin and they all come back. And it's a very emotional moment because it's not like, oh, they're playing music. It's like, this is how they choose to die. I'm even talking about right now, I'm getting like, oh, it's, it's an emotional moment. He's able to pay off those moments with characters that we don't even know, like that couple on the bed. And if you do some research, they're the- the, the They're the family that was owning Macy's at the time, yeah. Ida and Isidore. I love that you're talking about choice because to me, that's part of what makes Titanic so well-directed is that the characters in here, you see them actually making choices and thinking about it. Like, it was so important to Cameron that the actors feel as though it's not fated that the ship will sink. So he was always trying to remind them, remember, you don't know that the ship is going to sink. You don't think it's going to sink. You're calculating right now, engineer man, how long it will take until it sinks to try to make it fresh. And so you see characters like the sea captain at the end wander into one room, change his mind, leave the room with the ship's wheel and wander into another. You see Rose wander up and down hallways, not totally sure where she's going. It's not just like A to B action, the ship is sinking and you go here. He lets them think about it. He lets the orchestra members wander away and then come back. And so he makes the choices feel real. Well, I think what's so interesting about the historical nature of the Titanic was it happened relatively quickly, right? The sinking of the Titanic. And unlike a movie like The Poseidon Adventure, where the ship is upside down seemingly for hours, you know, um, this is happening in real time. And I think he captures 
those decisions. They may not all make sense. You know, uh, we have one of the the people that are loading the people onto the boat. You know, he shoots an innocent man out of a moment of pure panic. And then in a a move that's pretty uh, intense for a PG movie, shoots himself in the head. Um, I love all that. Yeah, the guy who shoots himself in the head, Officer Murdoch, real person, not totally sure he did shoot himself in the head, although the rumor is somebody did. But apparently the producers of Titanic felt so bad to his relatives that they portrayed him as a man who committed suicide and shot people that they went to his hometown to apologize in person. Oh, wow. You have a lot of actors in here that are not as big as Kate Winslet or DiCaprio. And really, I say DiCaprio because Winslet, I think, was not as well-known. I think this is her breakthrough as well. Victor Garber, amazing actor, right? But not somebody that you know as being a star. I know that De Niro was supposed to be playing the ship's ship's captain, captain. but he had a stomach issue that made him not be able to do it. And Reba McIntyre was going to be the unsinkable Molly Brown before Kathy Bates, which that just seems kind of wrong to me. I like – Kathy Bates is maybe the third most famous here, but I like that we get to dissolve into these – Character actors that we don't know. They feel more real to me, whereas if it was De Niro walking through the room being like, the ship won't sink, guys, I'd be like, oh, for fuck's sake, That's that's exactly what I was thinking is like I think that he actually serves himself better by doing a movie like this because you're really able to fall into the spell of the film. You're not watching actors act. And I think he did that – primarily in a lot of his films. I think that you always are, he creates a really big world and there are familiar faces, but uh, it's really the leads and that's about it. And then it all kind of feels real around the sides. Yeah, but he's smart enough to cast memorable faces. Yes. You're the Irish guy who gets shot, the one who looks like uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, like he and Fabrizio are like the Bill and Ted of Titanic. Memorable face. You're like, I've seen him three times. I remember his face. The little girl in the bed with her mother who's drowning as they're telling her a fairy story. You remember her face. He casts so interestingly. And then he also puts these supporting characters in who you only see for a scene and you don't forget. Like he has the Syrian family who's panicking in steerage because they can't read the exit signs. True story. There were tons of Syrians on that ship, not really written into history because nobody cared that much about them. Also, you don't see them, but there were apparently eight Chinese people on the ship. Six of them made it to land. Six of them survived immediately got turned back because of the Chinese Exclusion wow. Act. Didn't get to stay in America. You know what I think is interesting hearing about this too is he doesn't make death exciting in this movie. It's not, uh, it seems violent and it seems sudden and- um, It's Boschian. It's yes. like tormented. It's screaming and it's happening to like cute little blonde girls with curly hair. It's happening to everybody. It's not pretty. Like to It's compare the this anti-disaster film, movie. It's the anti-Avengers too. Because what I hate about Avengers movies is they always set up these big climaxes at the end where the good guys kill a bunch of robot dogs. And who gives a shit? Like here, every death actually matters. He makes them awful. Like you're there to see the death and you feel a little bit guilty, but he makes them count. None of the deaths in here are cheap. I'm going to say something maybe that's going to get me in trouble. Maybe as we keep doing the show, I think James Cameron is our greatest modern director. And I know I'm supposed to say Spielberg, but I think that Spielberg hits these touchstones over and over again, like sad little kid and like divorced parents and whatever. I think he goes on the same three violin strings. And I think Cameron is a full orchestra. You know, I will say about James Cameron, every movie he makes is legitimately fantastic, right? Like there, there is a flawlessness to every one of his films. Now, 
I know I've mentioned Avatar a lot. And I don't know why I have an Avatar bias, but there is something about like Avatar. Saw it in the theater twice. Loved it. I was like, that was great. And then you walk away from it, and I think a feeling fades. And I feel like that with Titanic as well. Oh my god. There is something about the films that he makes that are so big. They become such a cultural touchstone that the backlash actually hurts him. Uh, because I've never left a Cameron movie going like, eh. I go, that was amazing. But then four months from now, I go, eh, that's fine. I mean, yeah. I mean, great. it might be because he has such an ego about knowing he makes the greatest movies ever. I mean, if you went to bat and you first bat the biggest box office success yeah. of all time, and then you didn't go up to bat for another 12 fucking years. You go up to bat again 12 years later, and you just beat your record? Like, who do you think you are? You must think you're incredible. This is a movie that, you know, when it first premiered, it opened to, like, a fine response, right? And then it just kept on growing and growing. This film was playing on 3,200 screens 10 weeks after it opened. I mean, that's insane. And out of its 15 straight weeks on the top of the charts, it jumped 43% up in total sales on its ninth week of release. It earned $20 million a week for 10 weeks. And this is back in 1997. And after 14 weeks, it was still bringing in over $1 million a week. And 20th Century Fox estimated that 7% of American teenage girls had seen Titanic twice by its fifth week. That would be me. I, I was mean, in that group. That is, I mean, those are gigantic numbers. I mean, that is, nothing is like that. I mean, Black Panther seems like it has a little bit of that energy, but not as intense as this. Well, this is why it's so bizarre to me that Hollywood doesn't like to make romance movies, movies with romance in them really at all, because obviously you do that you get girls crying, we show the fuck up. Like, girls go see movies over and over and over and over again. And I guess boys do too, but people don't think about female audiences that way. You know, it's interesting you talk about women crying because this movie also is one of the few films that is credited as a film that makes men cry. Do it's you a, cry? Uh, oh, I'll cry at the drop of a hat. I mean, I cried in this movie. Like, I got worked up, I told you, talking about the the band playing. And I, oh, well, I'm ready to go. We I, should play some of that music. I want to see you cry. Oh, you'll see it. You'll you'll see it when the guys turn around and come back in. I'm like, yep, I'm down. Let's do it. I think I cry a lot at like emotional decisions made. That's like there's something where I feel like a character makes a choice. Choices. And choices. That's where I really get it. Like, yes, I was upset when the mom is tucking in the kids and reading the story. But I think I'm also crying at the choice of the mom doing that. I'm like, oh, that's so beautiful. Like she is that's the way that she's deciding to take her her children, like, out. Yeah, how interesting is it that in a film that's about just a giant accident, what Cameron finds is choice? Anyway, mm -hmm. let's hear some nearer the My God to the End, see if you cry. I feel it. I, the music does really help. <laughs> and so they lived happily together for 300 years. Oh, yeah. The land of Tirna. I feel it. Land of eternal youth and beauty. Yeah, this movie. This is. I mean. It totally works because he's showing utter catastrophe and then slowing it down to play this music. And it's a timeless music, it doesn't date the film. I think when you see a disaster movie or a movie like this, there's like a, 
bum, 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 you know, it's like you're watching the decisions of everybody. Yeah, and he doesn't do that horrible modern musical style, really. He gets that across more with like gears and tones and creaks of the ship. Yeah. He's not pounding it at no, you. No, 100%. The music here, the Irish tone to the music, I was trying to think like what is the theory behind a boat leaving England and then winding up in America having such an Irish bent to it? And I'm wondering if it's because they make that mention that like 15,000 Irish people built the ship and it sounds almost like the ghost of the ship. Oh, like wow. is the ship – since the ship is Irish technically, yeah, is it the ship's spirit maybe hollering in this <laughs> lilting – When flute. Irish people build the ship, Enya comes out. I love it. And the, the ghost of Enya is inside. might know Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye from the Straight Guy. I mean, that is if you can like see through your tears when you're watching Queer from the Straight Guy enough to see his face and take in the majesty of him, the beauty, the hair, the whole thing. But did you also know that if you just like hearing him talk, he has a podcast called Getting Curious and it is available right here on Earwolf. And what he does on Getting Curious is Jonathan explores anything and everything under the sun. You know that he can handle basically anything that comes up. This is what he does on this show. He invites experts in their fields and has these in-depth, eye-opening conversations with them about everything. I mean, like, everything. Like, if you wanted to hear Jonathan Bowes not just talk about how to look fabulous, but if you wanted to hear about how to save bees with a biology professor, or if you want to learn how to do triple axles with Olympian Mira Nagasu, Jonathan is multi-talented. As you guys know, if you've been following the episode from Queer Eye 1, the very first one, the season debut, the guy that he gave a makeover to, the guy with the big belly and the red face, got re-engaged to his ex-wife. So after you're done binge-watching season two of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy on Netflix, you can get a different side of Jonathan. In fact, this week on Getting Curious, he has Tan France, the Queer Eye fashion expert, on the show as his star guest for a very special episode. So subscribe now to Getting Curious with Jonathan Van Ness on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It is summer, and when you are done staying inside and watching movies with me and Paul, you want to be outside. You want to be going somewhere. You want to be doing something awesome, and you should probably take along your buddy, Audible, where you can walk around and get some sunshine, and you can hear some awesome books right through your headphones. I, myself, am about to go on a 28-hour plane flight to Kazakhstan, and so what I've got is the brand new Lee Child on Audible, which will help keep me company as I have a 10-hour layover in Moscow. I'm going to take an awesome, action-packed American killer with me. But that sounds more threatening than I mean it to. Anyway, in the Unspooled forums, someone reminded me recently that if you want to get inside the head of George Stevens, the director of Swing Time, you have to go to Mark Harris's book, Five Came Back, which is awesome. It's a book about when Ford, Weiler, Houston, Capra, and Stevens all went off to war. And it's on Audible right now. So you can take that with you this summer and get smarter. As an Audible member, you're going to get a credit every month that's good for any audiobook, regardless of price, and your unused credits roll forward to the next month. Plus, if you don't even like the audiobook that you picked, you can exchange it, no questions asked, and your book is yours to keep forever. That means you can go back and re-listen to it anytime, even if you cancel your membership. And better yet, you can switch seamlessly between devices and pick up on your book exactly where you left off. I mean, we're talking phone, car, tablet, home, Amazon Echo... You got the whole thing. So right now, you can start a 30-day trial and get your first audiobook for free right now if you go to audible.com slash unspooled or text unspooled to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash unspooled, U-N-S-P-O-O-L-E-D, or text unspooled to 500-500. And guys, tell me what you're reading, especially if you're reading an awesome movie book. Give me a good recommendation. 
We have a very exciting guest here today. Uh, someone who's actually a part of the film Titanic. Uh, he is a actor. He's a director. Uh, he's been in a million different things that you know from uh, Crimson Tide to Alive. He's currently on The Fosters. Uh, but today we're going to talk a little bit about his role of Fabrizio in Titanic. Please welcome Danny Nucci. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Fabrizio! <laughs> I'm so excited you're here. Me too. Uh, Danny, I feel like we're always acting and we're going out for auditions. We don't know what we're going to get. When you go in to audition for this movie, does it dawn on you that you are going into this big thing? No. I mean, other than, you know, you know it's Jim Cameron. Right. You know he's done Aliens. You know he's like a, a big-time director. But no, I, I was literally like, all right, I'll go. I'm like, fuck, i got to do an Italian accent. I don't want to do this. Why am I going to come <laughs> up with this? And uh, it was just one of those auditions where I kind of went in, and th- the two scenes were one where I say goodbye to my Norwegian girlfriend, and the other is the card scene from, yeah. from the film where it's obviously very jubilant and excited. And So yeah, it was a nice contrast in both scenes. So I got to do both of them. And it was the first time I'd ever had the director that I was reading for actually holding the camera. And moving while I was doing the while I was doing the uh, the reading, he was actually moving around and filming it while oh, I was wow. doing the reading with the casting director. Yeah, that's hold amazing. Up, hold, I, up, hold up, hold up. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm no, sorry. No, I'm, I'm going to have to like cross check so many things because okay. I'm so excited. Norwegian it. girlfriend. This is the girl that you're dancing with in the dance sequence correct. at the yes, bottom of the correct, book. Correct. She's Norwegian. Yeah. Well, actually, guys, she's Danish, the actress, but the uh, the character was Norwegian. Yeah. You guys had a goodbye scene that didn't wind up in the movie. Yeah, yeah. If you look at the uh, the uh, deleted scenes, it's in there. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel like when you were on the film, obviously you're having a great experience, but then we were doing a little bit of research and there was this like subtle backlash before the movie came out. Like, is it going to be good? Is this going to be a disaster? Did you feel any of that? Or yes, did- it was. It permeated the <clears throat> set all the time. This was going to be. At that time, we, we talked about it being Heaven's Gate, which was a huge flop. Right. You know? um, and so it was going to be like the biggest – you know, people were throwing out headlines of you know, right. Titanic sinks, yada, yada, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, and it, it was just very tense and, and we, we knew we were spending a lot of money. And you know, everybody that had worked on films before it was like, wow, everything is taking – so long. This has got to be so expensive. And so you, that was basically the sense of it. It's like, okay, we're making the next biggest flop in the history of, of Hollywood. Well, Did the pressure trickle down to you? Were you like, I got to not fuck this up. I got to get every line exactly well, right. Well, only in that the guy in charge of everything who's giving back his paycheck in order to continue to film is under a <laughs> tremendous amount of pressure. Right. And that permeated on the set. I mean, it was just, you know, everything and he's already, was on his shoulders. And he's already an intense director, legendarily an intense he, director. I mean, he's a screamer. Yeah. I mean, and what's, it's just not, you know, he's just, he's a screamer. And, you know, I, it, it, because I sat on a, in a boat with him once. We were, I don't know, it was friggin' <laughs> three in the morning. Right. We're in a little boat, like in the middle of the ocean. We're about to shoot a scene. I think I'm supposed to go swimming in the middle of the, um, the middle of the tank. I'm sitting there and I haven't had much time alone with Jim, but it's just the two of us sitting in the boat. So, Jimmy, <laughs> how's it going? I go, this is kind of, Amazing. He goes, oh, I can't stand it. And I said, why? He goes, this, something can go wrong at any moment. It's never going to go the way I viewed it. So it's just, uh, that's all I can see is it's probably going to go not the way I intended. Oh, wow. And it was just fascinating to get that perspective from him. Now, when you say that he's a screamer, is he screaming intelligible words and phrases or is it just noise? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing unintelligible. (laughs) 
<laughs> Nothing unintelligible. Well, how old are you when you're doing this movie? 26, 27. Okay, so you're that's at least a better like vantage point cuz I think if you're a kid it's scary. Like, you know, if you were like 16 or 18. It was frightening if you're 50. <laughs> Let me tell you something. When the guy in charge who can basically do everybody's job. I mean, you have to understand the man is a bit of a genius. And I mean that in the generally accepted sense. He is a genius. Right. He can basically go, okay, I don't like that makeup. Give me your makeup kit and fix it. Or if he's like, I don't like the way that shot is. Hold on. Let me run the dolly with the timing exactly the way. I want. He can do everybody's job. Wow. I mean, he's amazing that way. How long were you on set? I mean, DiCaprio said he was there for like seven months. He was, God, poor kid. <laughs> I mean, just, just, I don't think he slept for six months. I don't, I mean, I don't think he slept. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell me about shooting the King of the World sequence on the, on the so prow of funny. the boat. It's just, a, I, I love that story because it was one of the most miserable experiences I've ever <laughs> had in my life. What? Yeah. So, Leo and I are, there's a platform that's against the green screen, Right. But some of the shot is towards the ocean, so you can kind of – we kind of have to be up in the air with the ocean in the background and, you know. And it was uh, – I don't know. I, I want to say it was February. It was freezing. It was absolutely freezing. The wind was blowing and it was cold and we had to take a um, uh, kind of uh, a crane up. So it was just Leo and I because there was nothing else supposed right. to be there. So Leo and I are up there. We're cold and miserable and hungry, and we have to pee, and it's, you don't want to go, hey, Jim, can we stop shooting? Yeah. I got to pee. Can we get the crane back in, bring us down, have pee, every, everybody wait, yeah. and then come back, and then start shooting again. Would that be all right? So literally, the both of us have our mouths shut, and <laughs> every time we yelled, you know, he yelled cut, it'd be like, oh, <laughs> okay, in action, oh, my God, this is the greatest moment of my life, cut, oh. <laughs> wow. So, okay, also, I'm just, I have so many things I want to ask you. Tell me. One at a time, please. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. What about Fabrizio's backstory that we don't get to see in the movie? Like, tell me more about him. Well, I, I didn't really get much from Jim other than, you know, he was a vagabond. They had hooked up somewhere on, on Jack's travels. And uh, they found a kinship and, and a camaraderie, and they basically said, look, let's just – let's try to get to America, and that became their purpose. And so that's basically what he said. I'd left home with this one particular purpose. And uh, you know, in the original ending, it was so funny. And Jim Collins like, yeah, we're changing the ending too. First, you're not in the movie as much, and second, we're changing the ending. Um, <laughs> and it's this moment where I'm, I'm, I've made it far – like I've, I've actually uh, – Survive the smokestack. Right. I survive a bunch of other little uh, near-death experiences, and I finally get to the boat where uh, Cal is, where uh, Billy Zane's character is. And I finally get to the boat, and I'm just about to climb on it, and he's like, no, get away, get away, get away. You know, all the people that are trying to climb on the boat. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I have to get to America. I have to get to America. And he takes the oar, and he smashes me in the head, and he goes, it's that way. And I, And the last shot, which we shot, was me – Sort of bobbing in the water, kind of pulling away from the lifeboat as, oh. it, as it fades to black. It was really, really cool. Zane yeah. straight up murders Fabrizio. Yeah, yeah, that was the original. And uh, he was already so like, right, he was, yeah, so it, dastardly. Yeah, right. yeah, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think Jim saw the film. He's like, all right, I got it. Yeah, we got to get. And he, you know, he said, look, I, I think I'm going to kill you with the smokestack. And I came in and I shot the last couple of pieces. Wow. I mean, so is there a level of 
improvisation on it in the sense that we're doing this now, we're doing that. Like, are you able to, you know, kind of find these moments or collaborate in those moments? Or is it he's got the vision and you're just being slotted in? You know, as far as just, you know, in terms of comparing with other directors that give you creative freedom, Jimmy was great. You do, you know, five takes. And then just kind of the way he carries, like, all right, what do you want to do now? Like, so it's in your I, hands, right? Basically, he, I mean, he basically said, you can do whatever you want. And you look around, you're like, wow. So basically, this next take with all these people and everything and everything behind schedule is basically me going, let's try one this way. Let's try <laughs> one that way. But he gave you that room to do it. Um, this is a stupid question, but I'll ask anyway. Uh, I'm always obsessed with, like, rap gifts. Did you get a rap gift from Titanic? And- yeah, it's friggin' awesome. You know what I got? What? I got a friggin' chair. Oh, really? A, yep. a friggin' chair that says, thank you, Danny Nietzsche, for being part of Titanic. The actual deck chairs that we had in the movie. Oh, yeah. that's a great, that cool? yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. That's a really good and one. And we got a book and a blanket. There was a lot of stuff, yeah. yeah. Where is your deck chair? It's in my house and on my deck. Really? <laughs> As it should be. Yeah. You get to sit in the deck chair? Yeah, and my kid, uh, my younger daughter did a, they did like a whole Titanic court kind of thing, and so they used the chair and... So well, like, it was like a prop. It was worth it. So when people say oh, yeah. that line, like, "Oh, it's just like you're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic." Yeah. You can actually do that yeah, here can, in LA. In my house, yeah, it's really on my deck. <laughs> now, <laughs> right over here. Your daughter was born during the filming of it, so now she is of age. Of of like, did she experience this movie and have a love for it? Besides the fact that you were in it, or, or is no, it? Yeah, no. No, to her, it's just like it was just an annoyance. You know, I remember <laughs> we were in New York and and. Uh, you know, I was sort of stopped today. She's like, I'll take the picture. Just give me the camera. <laughs> <You know>? she's, <laughs> she's like, I'll take the picture. You know, so to her, it was just, you know, I'm just dad. Right, right. Of course. Yeah. Um, don't tell me, how, uh, okay. don't tell me how to play soccer. That's basically, you know, she's like, <laughs> I know how to play dad. You know, I'm dad. It's fantastic. Oh, have you ever karaoke'd Celine Dion? God, no. I can, I just, <laughs> honestly, can I just be yeah. just straight up here? I can't stand that song. What? If I never hear that song oh, again. Oh, well, I, I imagine it would, yeah, like. I can't. Uh, I mean, if I told you how many people have just started singing that to me randomly, it's hysterical. Don't do it, Paul. Oh, no, I know. I, know I won't. I won't because I can only imagine, like, there is a association with that song already for people who are not in the movie that is negative. So <laughs> to be, to have that be the one song that will follow you around that it, I could only imagine that is it, it, it makes my like, literally uh, it comes on and everybody yeah so the audition process was really then he was in the room with you it wasn't like you didn't have to go through a bunch of hoops then or or did you no I think it's just because it was his movie right and his vision so if he's in the room and he's watching it Basically, that's it. There's no other authority that yeah. that he has to pass it by. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of the three main leads. Right. It was, you know, kind of more of a supporting character. But it was one of the greatest audition experiences I've ever had. I did both scenes. And like I said, it, there was they were so well contrasted. One was, please come with me, you're going to die. And the other was, oh, my God, this is the greatest moment of my life. So having, being able to do both of those within, a, I don't know, a four or five minutes, yeah. you know, period of time, Jimmy puts the camera down. He goes... Oh, you're an actor. <laughs> and I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I once auditioned with Aaron Sorkin. He put his knees next to my knees and did the lines like eye to eye. And at the end of the audition, he's like, that was right. 
That was right. Yeah, I was like, and I was like, that never, like Aaron Sorkin. I never had right. had. I never had an audition like it. I love it. it. Um, I love it. That was right. That you know, was there's right. There's only one right way to yeah. do it. And I was like, oh man. Um, and are you on social media at all? Can people follow you at yeah, all? Yeah. Uh, I wish I had the same, uh, but I am at the 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 Danny Nucci on Twitter, and I am on at uh, Danuch okay. at Instagram. <laughs> I love it. And so we want to make friends sh- call you Danuch. Nooch. They just call me Nooch. <laughs> we want to make sure that everyone does know. If you see Danny out, don't sing Celine Dion to him. <laughs> That's it. I basically started something else. Oh, God. No, I want to watch the world Second burn. wave. Sing it to him. Sing it to him. Sing it to him. Sing it to him. The second wave. And why do they always start with near far? That's always the way they start. Want to know an easy way to save some money? I'll tell you, you can lower the interest rate on your credit card debt right now with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. What Lightstream does is it rewards consumers who have good credit with a great interest rate and no fees. So you can get a credit card consolidation loan from 5.89% APR with AutoPay. You can choose your funding date and you can do that as soon as today. So if you get overwhelmed by all of this stuff, I just recommend you visit their website, lightstream.com. And suddenly what seems incredibly complicated to me looks clearer. It makes this all a little bit less intimidating. And right now, Unspooled listeners can get an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get the discount, though, is you go to lightstream.com slash unspooled. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash unspooled. This awesome deal is, of course, subject to credit approval, and your rate includes a 0.5% auto pay discount. Your terms and conditions apply, and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. All right. So I don't know if you noticed, but during the film, the names Jack and Rose are said quite a lot uh, to a point that I didn't realize this is a thing until I Googled it. And someone actually put together a super cut of the Jackson Rose. We're not going to play the whole thing, but we'll play a little bit of the beginning and show you how it ends. But right now, I want before I play it, I want you to guess how many times uh, did they say Jack? How many times did they say Rose? Just your gut, Amy. Uh, 90 Jacks. 90 Jacks. 60 Roses. 90 Jacks, 60 Roses. Here we go. Rose Calvert. You have my attention, Rose. Rose DeWitt Decatur died on the Titanic. Her name was Rose Dawson back then. Can you tell me who the claimant was, Rose? Jack! 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 Stay on, Rose. I love you, Jack. Listen, Rose. Winning that ticket, Rose, was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I'm thankful for that, Rose. Promise me now, Rose. I will never let go, Jack. 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 There's a book, Jack. Jack. Final score, Jack 84, Rose 75. Paul, uh, Paul, being on this podcast with you, Paul, I love it, Paul. <laughs> it is a great uh, video. That was uh, put together by the, the, the people over at Film Drunk. Uh, it's, it really is fun to watch. By the way, actually, quick question. How do you feel about all this stuff where they're like women and children first? As a man, are you mad about that? No, I felt like I actually felt bad for every man that's on those boats. I'm like, what are you doing on those boats? I would, you know, I, I put myself in the position of being a father and a husband, and I and I think – I would hate to be separated from my children, but 
if it came down to it, I would uh, I would steal a kid just like Billy Zane. No, I would I would <laughs> let them go. I mean, it's you know what I think is interesting too. Women and children first, a hundred percent agree with that in theory. But then once you're on that boat as a man, don't you feel like the biggest piece of shit in the world? Like you would feel like garbage. Like there is no way that these people did not live a life of pure shame. They're like, oh, you survived the Titanic. Yeah. Well, I thought they said woman and children Oh, they first. did. Yeah. Let me tell you about another life of pure shame. I found this one so interesting. Okay. So that pinchy face guy, the pinchy mm-hmm. face guy was like, no, get, get away from my boat, blah, 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 blah. Second officer, light taller. So he puts a lot of boats into the water, half empty. He's just panicking. He's weird. He's freaking out. He um, gets on a boat himself. He lives. He's responsible for letting a bunch of men die. Like he told a bunch of men to get off a lifeboat and then he just let the lifeboat go half full. Uh, anyways. He lives, he becomes a sailor in World War I right after this. He is allegedly accused quietly of capturing a German boat and then just murdering all the Germans on it. Whoa. And being a total psychopath. So you're like, this guy is like a fucking rage machine yeah. on the ocean. Then he retires. He's like, I've done with publicity. I'm done with the water. I'm done with all this shit. He goes to England. Then when World War II happens, he's one of the guys in Dunkirk who sails a boat across the ocean and rescues a bunch of British soldiers. And in fact, he's the guy played by Mark Rylance in Dunkirk. Wow. I'm telling you, Pinchy Face Guy got around. Look at that. He. We need a movie about Pinchy Face Guy. We've had two. I know, but he <laughs> put them together in one. Um, did you notice when you saw the 3D remastered version of Titanic that something had changed? Do tell. All right. Well, towards the end of the movie, uh, Rose, who's almost frozen, sees a sparkly night sky as Jack makes his way to the frozen afterlife. Unfortunately, that's not what a real Titanic survivor would have seen given the coordinates in the water. And according to astrophysicist and killjoy Neil deGrasse Tyson, oh, of course. he wrote, it said, you know, technically mm-hmm. they wouldn't have seen it. Uh, and so uh, basically Cameron went back in and fixed the star field in the sky. So it's the right stars in the sky above Rose, which I think is two perfectionists just colliding right there in a beautiful uh, way. That's probably what fed Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter. That's probably what made him the man that he is. I know. It's so like if you're watching Starfields in that moment of the movie, you have no heart. You have no soul. The black hole. (laughs) Well, I want to talk about two other Titanic movies Mm -hmm. really fast because, of course, there's been a bazillion Titanics. The most famous one before this was A Night to Remember. There was also a movie, the very first movie made after the Titanic sank was made 29 days after the boat sank. What? Rushed into production. Whoa. It was called Saved from Titanic, and it starred an actress who had been on the fucking Titanic. Her name was Dorothy Gibson. She survived. Uh, They had her her boyfriend at the time, her secret boyfriend, he was a movie producer. They were both with other people. Okay. Was like... Babe, let's make this fucking movie. I showed up at the dock when the Carpathia got there. I got this footage of the Carpathia. You put on your real clothes that you wore when you almost died. And then we'll make this like quickie movie. It was just a one reeler. She made it. She had a breakdown. She never acted again. But people said she was pretty good in the movie. Then she like hit somebody with a car right after that and then fucked off to, to Europe and became a Nazi spy. Whoa. Yeah. Also, rumor is is that this actress, Dorothy Gibson, is one of the other people who inspired Susan Alexander Kane from Citizen Kane besides Marion Davies. Oh, wow. Right? This movie – I mean, by the way, I think the history of the Titanic is fascinating. We have so many different people from so many walks of life that the tendrils of them just really go out. And I feel like living through this, 
must have made you insane on some level. I mean, it is, you know, you escaped death on a machine that was supposedly death proof, you know? So it's, I think you have, something is switched. Speaking of something being switched, you know, we always hear about uh, big movies. Oh, there's so many funny pranks on set. By the way, no one enjoys pranks. I don't think that pranks are like what we go in for, but uh, I guess on the final night of shooting Titanic, um, somebody put PCP into the clam chowder and that was served to the entire cast and crew and this is not the Titanic sequence. This is more of the um, the sequence on the boat with Bill Paxton. Eighty people were sent to the hospital with hallucinations, and um, Bill Paxton actually was talking about it. He goes, "Oh yeah, fifteen minutes in, the entire crew is just milling about. People were laughing, people were crying, people were throwing up. You know." And Bill Paxton said, well, you know, "One minute I felt okay, and the next minute I was so goddamn anxious I wanted to breathe in a paper bag." Cameron was feeling the same way, but because that guy is a fucking perfectionist, he made himself puke and actually did not have to go to the hospital. He's like, I, I got it. I'm, I've been OD'd. Let's go. And he just fixed himself up. But I just love that Cameron had the wherewithal to go, PCP, I know how to take care of it. And let's go. Back. Let's <laughs> well, go start shooting. Smiley face bullet head guy. Uh, his quote about watching Cameron vomit was he said that one of Cameron's eyes turned bright red and that he looked just like the Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> So we talked a little bit about how Titanic has this like retroactive uh, negative connotation to it. And I think a lot of it now is focused on this like meme of there was enough room for Jack on that plank that Rose is on. By the way, that plank was actually a real plank that's in the Titanic Museum. But I think if you're thinking about that, you're missing what the movie is about. Of course. There is room, but who cares? I, I feel like this is the kind of shit that we get bogged down in. I was talking about this on a, a Westworld panel. The idea that, like, people who get obsessed about the details that don't make a difference to the story. Like, yes, you can nitpick. Like, in this movie, when the Titanic goes next to a sailboat, you're like, of, no sailboat would be allowed to, to be that close to the Titanic. But it and works it would, so well in showing you the scale. Exactly. It's a movie. We have to allow ourselves some you know, suspension of disbelief, some creative license. And I think that the thing, the only thing I like about it is that it pisses James Cameron off so much <laughs> that he gets so irritated that people bring up there's room in the raft. It's not like he was like, oh, there's no place for him to go. He could have built the bigger plank. He just, you know, he was, I think, keeping her afloat. Who knows? Maybe he, two bodies would have gotten on there, would have flipped over. I don't know. Well, related to that. Okay, there are three times I cry in this movie. We already talked about the old people. Yes. I also cry at... The ending, when Rose dies and she's welcomed into the land of the dead Titanic oh, survivors. And you see everybody beautiful. who died and they slow clap for her. Oh, fucking Very lost. Me. Very well. You know, it's beautiful. like they all go back to the Titanic. Beautiful. But the first time I cry in this movie is always the same. It's always the same. And it's the moment where Rose is getting lowered into the, into the lifeboat. She sees that flicker. You were talking about how all the actors here have that flicker when they know they're going to die. She sees the flicker on Jack's face when Cal tells him that he's not going to get on that lifeboat. She panics, she climbs off the boat, they race towards each other, and then this happens. Rose! You're so stupid! Why'd you do that, huh? You're so stupid, Rose! Why did you do that? Why? You jump high, jump right. 
You're so stupid. That's the most romantic thing ever because oh. it is stupid. It's a stupid decision. If you nitpick this movie and you're like, Rose, what are you doing? Yeah. It's stupid. But he knows it and they take that romantic moment and it's not like they embrace and it's like, I love you forever, Rose. He calls her stupid and that makes it so much more beautiful. Even though my nitpick is like, Rose, if you didn't get off the fucking boat, he could have gotten on the piece of wood. He'd be fine. He would have reconnected on the Carpathia in like 12 hours. Maybe. Maybe. I mean, James Cameron is a jerk. Like, one of the famous stories about James Cameron from when he was a little kid was that a kid in his neighborhood stole a bunch of his toys. So he found that kid's treehouse, climbed up to it, sawed off some of the branches just a little bit so that when the kid got on it, it fell down. I mean, Whoa. He- is a little bit extreme. He's a guy who, when he takes a shower, he sings the ride of the Valkyries. He's intense. But Oof. he's fascinating to me because he's a guy who, when he was little, the movie that really turned him on to movies at first was 2001 A Space Odyssey. And then he went on with his life. He didn't really do well in college. He failed out. I think he was a truck driver. Then he sees Star Wars. And he's like, okay. If Star Wars can do this, I'm going to do this. And he quits his truck driving job and he decides, I'm going to learn special effects. I'm going to be a movie director. I'm going to do Piranha 2. I'm going to take over when the director leaves. I'm going to be a film director. And he does it. Like, But I love that he's influenced by films that we've got on our list. I mean, James Cameron is known for writing really awesome women like Linda Hamilton. I think Aliens is better than Alien, honestly, because I love Sigourney Weaver. In I the actually sequel. agree, yeah. Dude, thank you. We are friends. Yeah, 100%. And I like how in his disaster movie, he layers in so much about what it was like to be a feminist in 1912 before people were even really using the word. When they did, they would call you like a crazy suffragette. But let's do a montage of all the anti-woman shit that Rose has to deal with. You wanted to see the, she wanted to see the propellers. <laughs> like I said, women and machinery do not mix. But the purpose of university is to find a suitable husband. Rose has already done that. It's so unfair. Of course, it's unfair. Women. I want to talk a little bit before we kind of wrap up here, too, a little bit about the backlash. In 2003, the film topped a poll in Empire Magazine of the best film endings. But it also topped a poll of the worst movie of all time. And um, Empire Magazine actually reduced their rating of the film from a maximum five stars an enthusiastic review to four stars with a less positive review. Oh, hold by your truth. That's disappointing. I know. And uh, because they felt like they wanted to accommodate their readers' taste. Oh, they wanted for to dis- bullshit dis- sake, disassociate Empire. from them, oh, the, my from God. the hype around the movie. Oh, fuck off. It's, Sorry, as a, a critic, you don't want to do that. Believe no, I mean, what you say. Well, I, I believe it. And I also believe that you can watch a movie in one moment and feel one way and then feel another way about it. Like Owen Gleiberman. Uh, who writes for Variety now back at the time he was writing for uh, EW in EW he has said a really interesting thing about Titanic he called it one of the founding manifestos of hater culture because Titanic came out just as the internet was starting to rise up and merge into the ocean of our lives and though at that point most of the hate directed at the movie was conversational and anecdotal in spirit it was computer viral it was about the fragments of resentment banding together and organizing themselves into a cult, a movement, an anti-fan club. It was Occupy James Cameron's unspeakable dialogue. That's fascinating. I think it just solidifies what we talked about in the beginning, that this movie is an unduplicatable film for the time. It will never have something that I think will hit across the culture the same exact way because of this culture that we've now created, which is the internet culture where you can pick about the size of the board the you know the bad dialogue it 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 actually 
when you Neil deGrasse Tyson this entire thing, you start to find flaws where there is no flaws. You start to look at the movie as uh, parts and not as a whole. Exactly. So let's talk about reviews. I just want to single out one newspaper actually here. I want to talk about the LA Times. Okay. And I want to talk about Kenneth Strand at the LA Times, who I totally love. He taught me at USC. He's the wonderfulest person. And he also became pretty famous in 97, 98 for hating Titanic more than anybody else. Wow. So this is from his original review. Uh, He wrote, Just as the hubris of headstrong shipbuilders who insisted that the Titanic was unsinkable led to an unparalleled maritime disaster, so Cameron's overweening pride has come unnecessarily close to capsizing this project. For seeing Titanic almost makes you weep in frustration. What really brings on the tears is Cameron's insistence that writing this kind of movie is within his abilities. Ouch. Not only isn't it, it isn't even close. Because crafting a moving, incredible love story is a different order of business from coming up with wisecracks for Arnold Schwarzenegger. Instead, what audiences end up with, word-wise, is a hackneyed, completely derivative copy of old Hollywood romances, a movie that reeks of phoniness and lacks even minimal originality. Interesting. That's a pretty harsh takedown of many things. But I would argue after this conversation, I would say that the only way that you can approach this film is by writing it in a more classic, melodramatic way. It, it, it can't, you can't encompass all the small little details of a modern love story in a film this big. You have to use a bigger brush, I think. And that's why Clearly, it worked for so many people, too. Well, I would like to think that if you were around in 1998, you would have been one of the people angrily writing letters to Kenneth Strand. There were millions of them. Like, they really? filled the LA Times editorial pages for months because he also just kept writing things. As it got more Oscar noms, he'd be like, fuck you. Wow. And they kept writing him. This is one of the ones I liked. They wrote to the editor, if a thousand Kenneth Turans were put on an island and told to write one screenplay as good as the Titanic script, within a picosecond, they would chop down all the trees, build rafts, and get the hell out of there because all critics secretly know that they are mere eunuchs who freely give advice to parents on how to raise their children. Wow. Eunuchs. Eunuchs. And then somebody wrote in, and I want you to read this one. Okay. Because James Cameron wrote to Kenneth Turan, and they published this in the LA Times, and it started a bit of a thing. I have shrugged off Kenneth Turan's incessant reign of personal barbs over the last few months, since he is clearly not a big enough man to admit when he is wrong. Turan has tipped his hand. We now see his true heart. It's not that he doesn't like some movies, as is a critic's prerogative. It is that he does not like all movies. Simmering in his own bile, year after year, he has become Further and further removed from the simple, joyful experience of movie watching, Turan sees himself as the high priest of some arcane art form that is far too refined for the average individual to possibly appreciate. This is paternalism and elitism in its worst form and utterly insults the movie audience, which is theoretically his constituency. It must be a great burden to be cursed with such clear vision when your misguided flock bray past you like lemmings, unmindful. Forget about Clinton. How do we impeach Kenneth Turan? Wow. See, that is why I think there is a Titanic backlash. Because then everybody went from being mad at Kenneth Turan to being mad at James Cameron. I think there's a part of James Cameron in that letter that's basically like, you don't think I can write? I'm going to write you the most critical letter of all time. Your misguided flock break past you like lemmings. Unmindful. (laughs) I mean, mean, that's it. I think that's why there is this backlash. Because then he wins all the Oscars. He gets up there and he says, I'm the king of the world. Which was an improvised line, by the way. Improvised line. And then later that 
at night. He's still married to Linda Hamilton at this time. He hasn't completely divorced her yet for Susie Amos. Okay. And that night, somebody goes up to Linda Hamilton and they're like, uh, hey, so do you think Cameron's going to change a lot now that he's won all these Oscars? And she says, he was always a jerk, so there's no way to tell. Wow. And then he divorces her and he goes to Susie. So my question to you is, it's 83 on the list. Should it be higher? Should it be lower? Is this the Cameron film that should be on the list? I mean, it is very interesting at the AFI list, kind of like what we were talking about with William Friedkin last week. It doesn't have anything else of him on here. It doesn't have it doesn't have aliens, it doesn't have Terminator, it doesn't have the Abyss. In part because of one thing Cameron's always been really upset about. He he criticizes the Oscars for this. He says that the Oscars do not consider science fiction humanistic enough and that they call science fiction movies artifice when he says that all movies are innately artificial. He's always stuck up for science fiction, and it doesn't look like it's working here for the AFI Top 100 list for him. But I'm happy Titanic is there, and I think Titanic should be a lot higher. I agree with you that Titanic should be on this list because as we're watching it, it starts to feel like these are movies that cross boundaries and generations. If you were to pick only one James Cameron film, at this point, I think I would pick this because you could watch it with the whole family. Terminator 2 is probably where I live in the sense of like that blew my mind when I saw it. Uh, I also love Aliens. But this is, I think, elevated from those two films, which I love and probably have seen, definitely have seen more than this. I agree. I think this movie should be top 50. I buy that. Yeah, I buy top, it. Top 40? No. I, top 40? <laughs> we have to see. We haven't seen that many yet. All right. So, Amy, I think it's interesting that you brought up uh, James Cameron and his connection to 2001. I noticed something going on right here in town, which is 2001 is having a road show right now across the country celebrating its 50th anniversary. Uh, it's the full picture with an overture and intermission. It may be coming to your town. And I thought instead of rolling the die this week, we would go see 2001. Do you think that would be something we could do? Could we not roll the die this week and do that? I mean, if you want to take the curse upon your shoulders oh and have gosh. the orcs show up in your room at night, that's fine by me. Maybe the die is communicating to me and saying, don't roll me. Go see the road show. <laughs> What's your movie snack? Well, look, I'm an East Coaster, so I go with Twizzlers. Uh, so I'm not a Red Vine person. Deal. All right. Deal. If All you right. said Red Vines, we weren't going to do All this. All right. Perfect. All right. Let's do it. All so right. you're saying let's do 2001 Space Odyssey next episode. Well, I, for one, am very excited to talk about 2001 because it's a movie that I feel like I've never quite got. Like, I, I've watched it. I've seen it. But it's never affected me the way that... When I talk to people about movies, they're like, oh, no, it's one of the best movies of all time. Well, and I have a theory that it maybe doesn't mean as much as people think it does, but that's what makes it fun to watch. Okay. I, th I think it's an art sort of designed to be interpreted, I don't know, have some fun, guys. What do you think it means? Well, what do you think it means? And I'm talking to you, the listeners right there. Give us a call. Give us your Breakdown, what is the space child? What is going on? Is it a metaphor? Is it a simile? You tell us. Give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And we will see you next week. And in the meantime, uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, wherever you follow us or personally, too. We'd love to hear from you. Paul, you're the king of my world. And Amy, I will never put PCP in your clam chatter. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week for... 2001, A Space Odyssey.
Hey, this is Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Eight nights. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Uh, Yes, I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. (laughs) Jesus. I mean, (laughs) Jazos. Ruler of the eighth circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.